With Passion Week approaching, what are the most essential truths for us to remember for the upcoming week or even every week? Stay with me. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. I'm Michael Rydelnik. I'm the Dean and Professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I'm so glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you, taking your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. If you have a question and you'd like to call, the phone number here is 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. Well, sitting in for Trisha McMillan in the producer's chair today is Tahira Haynes. Welcome, Tahira. So glad you're here handling all things technicals, not Courtney Young, but... Amy Rios is sitting in for her. We've got the backup crew doing a great job here today. I'm so glad that they're here. And uh, answering the phones is Josie Robbins. Well, now go get your cup of coffee, open your Bible, because we're about to study the Scriptures together. But before we get to your questions, let's talk about what we must always remember. You know, last instruction is so crucial. I remember when my number one son went to camp for the first time. He was seven years old, and I was leaving him. It was scary. Six days without his parents, and I remember we grabbed him right before uh, we were leaving. I said, here's the things to remember. Keep keep doing these last-minute reminders. Eat your green beans. Don't just eat the hot dogs, you know. Uh, make sure you change your clothes every day. You know, things like that. Uh, always giving him the last-minute reminders of what was most important. Paul in 2 Timothy, was facing his death, his departure. And he gave Timothy, his spiritual son, last-minute reminders. In fact, the one that I want to focus on is what he told Timothy to remember. Because, obviously, if that's what he's telling Timothy as he's anticipating his departure from this life into the next, that these are important truths for us to remember as well. 2 Timothy 2.8 says this. Now, I'm not going to read from an English version. I'm reading from the Rydelnik version. This is my own translation of the Greek. Remember Jesus the Messiah, risen from the dead, of the seed of David, according to my gospel. That verse contains three essential truths that we must always remember. Here they are. Here's the first one. Jesus the Messiah is alive. We have to always remember that our Messiah is a living Messiah. I often hear people talk about, well, when Jesus died. Well, yeah, Jesus did die, but he rose again and he is still alive. One of the hardest things for people to accept is the resurrection. In fact, they've come up with all sorts of strange ideas to explain the resurrection of Jesus. They have the swoon theory that Jesus was drugged and swooned and didn't really die, and then recovered. Boy, that takes a lot of uh, faith to believe that, that he could be drugged and then crucified and then buried in a tomb, wrapped up in grave clothes, and come back and present himself as the glorious Messiah. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or that there was a mass hallucination. Up to 500 people all saw the same hallucination. That's ridiculous. Or that the disciples ran to the wrong tomb? Well, if that were the case, 
wouldn't the opponents of Jesus have produced the right tomb and produced the body? Uh, no, no. There's only one truth that Jesus is alive, and that's proven by the changed lives of the disciples. Each and every one of them was willing to die for this truth. Would you be willing to die for a lie? Absolutely not. The second important truth, besides Jesus the Messiah being alive, the second one is Jesus the Messiah is our king. This text says not only that he is risen from the dead, but he is of the seed of David. That throws us back to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, where David was promised a seed that would establish his dynasty and his house and his kingdom and his throne would be forever. What this is saying is that Jesus is a Jewish king for one thing, He's Jewish humanity. He's of the seed of David. But not only is he Jewish, a Jewish king, he's the king of the whole world. And most importantly for us, he's our king. He's the Davidic king over our lives. Uh, Jesus is our king. You know, there was a situation once where my wife, Eva, was disappointed uh, about a position that she had applied for. And uh, she didn't get it, and she was a little disappointed, and she talked with someone about it. And that person said to her, are you going to quit serving the king because you didn't get the job that you wanted? And she said, absolutely not. I'm going to do all for the king. And after that, she always would sign her letters, all for the king. That's how she signed off. And it's the great reminder that we have. I, I copied her, by the way. But anyway, the thing about it is it's a great reminder that we serve our king in whatever he wants us to do. It's all for the king. We need to remember that Jesus the Messiah is alive. We need to remember that Jesus the Messiah is our king. And thirdly, we need to remember that Jesus the Messiah is our message. You know, when we think about the message, Paul says, this is according to my gospel. And so often when I hear people present the gospel, they'd say the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. The Lord Jesus died for our sins. And, you know, that's true. The substitutionary death of our Messiah that we observe and remember every year at Good Friday is crucial. But just remember this. Estimates say that there were 20,000 Jewish men crucified by the Romans in the first century. 20,000 but only one was raised from the dead. That's so essential when we present the gospel that we don't forget that, yes, Jesus the Messiah died for our sins as our substitution, but he was raised, proving he is alive and he is fully God. I have a, a friend who listens. To, she's, she's, she's actually a quite observant Jewish woman. Uh, she lives in our neighborhood, and uh, she listens to, because she likes the values, a lot of Christian radio. One of the things she asked my wife, Eva, was, why do they keep talking about Jesus being dead? What's the, what's the point of that? And of course, it's because she always hears the first part of the good news, our gospel, that Jesus the Messiah died for us. But the most important part is to finish that. Jesus the Messiah is alive. He was raised from the dead. Well, what are the three essential truths that we need to remember? 
Jesus the Messiah is alive, Jesus the Messiah is our King, and Jesus the Messiah, his death and resurrection, is our message. That's the good news. I was in turn pastor at a a wonderful congregation uh, many years ago, and, and they were controversial for trying very hard to reach out to their community. And there were people who were opposed to the good news who would actually go and protest. They said the church was hateful. They said the congregation was mean-spirited, and they would come and protest in front of the, the building. One week when they were protesting, an usher went out to them and said, why don't you come in and hear the message? And two of the protesters said, okay, we'll do that. After they came in, they heard the message, and they were leaving. They said to, uh, the, the usher went up to them and said, well, what'd you think? And they were shocked. They said to the usher, well, it was all about Jesus. Isn't that great? I was so happy. They said it wasn't mean. It wasn't hostile. It was just all about Jesus. It's my hope that every time I talk, people say, you know, he was only talking about the Lord Jesus. And I hope the same for you, that we'll remember Paul's exhortation to Timothy, that it's really all about Jesus, the Messiah. Well, we're going to go to the phones right now and speak with Roger in northern Minnesota, listening on KBHW. Welcome to Open Line, Roger. How can I help you? Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've recently joined a church, and uh, at the church I was at before, I was teaching adult Sunday school, and it was really a blessing. I love studying in that, but uh, I don't want to be tooting my own horn, you know, you know, boasting or anything like that. And is it uh, wrong for me to let people know that I did teach before? Well, I don't think it's wrong to let people know. I wouldn't uh, go boasting about it, but, uh, you know, every church needs to assess and evaluate someone at uh, a, a new person. They want to, uh, you know, they don't just turn over teaching to someone who's new, don't you expect? So I, what I would do is I would meet with uh, the pastor, particularly if they have a mobilization pastor, someone who gets people involved in ministry, uh doing the the work or the senior pastor if it's a smaller church or just meet with someone and talk about how you want to become active in ministry and if there's opportunity uh you believe you have the gift of teaching maybe they would give you a chance to see if they concur with that uh and uh if that's an opportunity that opens up to substitute teach or do something of, of that nature i bet they'll do it you know they might ask you about your your doctrine or things like that because we're always I know when I was a pastor, I was always concerned not just if someone could teach, but about what they were teaching. So, yeah, I don't think that's a bad thing to do, to let someone in leadership know about that. How do you feel about that? Uh, it sounds good. Yeah, yeah. It sounds good. Yeah, I think it's good. Uh, you know, I have to say, just be sure that, that uh, you, you are available to serve in any way. Sometimes people say, uh, they remind us of what the Lord Jesus taught, that if we're faithful in small things, then we'll be given greater things. Uh, you know, it might be that they want you to do something that's not quite as prominent and be willing, whether it's your gifting or not, to serve in whatever they need. That's what I would encourage you to do. Okay? Okay, okay sounds great. Thank great. you. Great. Hey, before we go to break, I do want to tell you about our current resource. Uh, it's because I'm deeply devoted, committed to this resource, because I wrote it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I 
It's based on the questions asked right here on Open Line. It's called 50 Most Important Bible Questions. Taking the most frequently asked questions and also some of the most significant, I tried my best to give easy-to-understand answers for everyone, from the seeker to the mature follower of Jesus. This book is yours when you give a gift of any size to Open Line. We want to say thank you by sending you this book. All you have to do is call 888 644 7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, when you give, ask for the book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. Well, you're listening to Open Line. My name is Michael Rydelnik, and we're, we have lots of time for your questions. We're just starting out, 877-548-3675. Call us with your question about the Bible, God, or the spiritual life. Stay right there. We'll be back in a moment with more of your questions right here on Moody Radio. Welcome back, America. This is Michael Rydelnik, and this is Open Line. Actually, I said America. That This is our Bible study across America. But, you know, uh, I understand that there are people who listen in other parts of the world. I was just in Israel a few weeks ago, and I met people who listen to Open Line in Israel. And I was so grateful. Uh, I, I just can't believe it. Uh, they said it. Uh, it's not on in the morning there. It's on in the uh, early evening and they listen on a regular basis. Some people I met overseas, they listen on the podcast. And so I'm really, really grateful uh, for everyone who listens. And uh, people ask me when they listen, uh, they say, well, what's the whole thing about sitting around the radio kitchen table? Well, that's because when I was a pastor, we started a congregation a Messianic congregation. I was a congregational leader there, and I started this congregation, and we rented facilities to meet at, but we didn't have any facilities during the week. And so when I did discipleship or Bible studies, we did them around our kitchen table in our house. Even I would sit there, and we would talk with people, and uh, it was always so much fun. And sometimes it was just people asking questions about the Bible. And I felt like when we started, I was going to visualize myself in the studio, sitting around that kitchen table, talking to people and answering their questions. And as a result of that, that's what we talk about, sitting around the radio kitchen table. And because of that, also, uh, people who wanted to keep open line on the air by giving a gift monthly, they keep us on the air weekly, we called them kitchen table partners. We're so grateful for them. And I thought maybe you may have never given a gift to Moody, but you appreciate this program. Perhaps you'd become a kitchen table partner. You can join with us by giving monthly, and that keeps us on the air regularly so that we can keep teaching the Bible to people. Uh, If you were to become one, we'll send you a Bible study moment every other week. It's it's an audio Bible study prepared exclusively for our kitchen table partners. You'll find it in your email every other week. To become a kitchen table partner, just call 888-644- 7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And we're going to speak with Tom in Chattanooga, Tennessee, listening on WMBW. Welcome to Open Line, Tom. How can I help you? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, before I ask my question, I'd like to say an encouraging word to people that could only give a small amount to support Open Line, if, if that's okay. Okay. 
Thank you. I appreciate uh, every, any gift. It's so grateful. So grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, t- I talked to um, a uh, station manager at a local station one time, and I said, I've thought about giving something to your station, but all I could give you is $5 a month right now. And he said, that would be wonderful. Most of our gifts are $5 a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they you, add up. But, yeah, they add up, and we're really grateful for everyone participating in that. I, I mean... I'm just grateful for I'm listen I'm, I'm surprised anyone listens to the program when I first started on open line I thought Eva my wife's going to be the only one listening regularly but I'm always surprised that there are others so I'm so so grateful for uh, any gift I think it's remember what the Lord taught about the the old widow who gave her two pennies yeah she was she's in the hall of fame of giving so I'm grateful for any great uh, gracious gift that people give so Thank you for that encouragement. Hey, so how can I help you today? Uh, a while back, uh, you were talking about Bible versions, and you said the Holman Christian standard is your favorite. And at that time, uh, you said that you hadn't read the Christian standard enough to form a, a, a firm opinion on it, or however you put it. And I, I guess I've missed when you might have talked about it since then, but I was mm-hmm. wondering, what do you think of the Christian standard Bible? I think it's good. I still think it would be my favorite version that I would recommend. Uh, but I do, I, I do prefer the original HCSB as opposed to the Holman CSB. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I, I like some of the decisions they made. For example, in the Gospels or actually throughout the New Testament, in every Jewish context, it translates the word Christos as Messiah. Uh, the revised one does not do that. It goes back to the traditional Christ, which doesn't really uh, communicate as well, I think. Uh, but generally speaking, I think they only changed about 10% when they revised it. And so generally speaking, it's basically the same translation, and I think it's very good. I still think it's really good. So, But I, well, you know what I did when they revised it? I went online and I bought, I don't know, five or six uh, HCSBs so that I could have them in my uh, in, in my uh, closet, ready to take out as I wear out Bibles. That's <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> I can set a goal to wear. We'll see if I can wear out one Bible. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm actually at the point now with my HCSB. I have it the exact Bible replacement, but I have so many things written in this Bible that I don't know. I don't want to replace it, so I'm going to get some library tape and put it across the back binding of the the Bible to try and preserve it for a while. Uh, but, you know, I've got these worn-out Bibles that I keep in my nightstand, and I think, oh, man, I tried to have them rebound. It never works quite as well for me. Probably for other people it does, but for me, rebinding hasn't worked well. So I want to keep, preserve this one as long as I can. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, but by the way, if, if you can only get a CSB, it is a really good translation. You'll be very happy with it. So, okay? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for calling. We're going to talk with Geneva in Jackson, Alabama, listening on WMBV. Welcome to Open Line, Geneva. How can I help you? Oh, thank you. Well, I've been to Israel two times, and back in 99, it was in December, as I was taking pictures of the Western Wall, it, it occurred to me that that long wooden ramp yeah. on the far right was not there mm-hmm. in 99 when I was there. They call it the Mugrabi Gate, I think. Mm-hmm. 
and it, they had an earthquake or something caused it to collapse, and that's why they built that long curving ramp. And I'm wondering if you think that earthquake fault or that earthquake could possibly have any significance, you know, prophetically. Well, first of all, I'm not sure it was an earthquake that caused the original ramp to go down and be replaced by the one they have now. I don't know what caused it. I think it was just falling apart because it was old. So uh-huh. uh, I don't think that even if there was an earthquake, there's a lot of earthquakes. I've experienced earthquakes in Israel because it's along a fault line. And so it's not unusual to have an earthquake. But so far, I don't think anything significant prophetically happened with those kinds of earthquakes. Okay? Okay. Okay. But, you know, some people think that there, that fault runs across the Mount of Olives, and it says in Zechariah 14 that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and uh, the mountain will split from north to south. Uh, you know, there's no fault that I have seen on the Mount of Olives, no fault line, and I don't believe the Lord Jesus will need a earthquake or a fault line for his feet to split the Mount of Olives. I think he's fully capable when his feet stand there by his word to split that mountain. So, uh, yeah, that's, and uh, you know, I know that there's going to be an increase in earthquakes in the, in the tribulation period, but uh, that's in the tribulation period. We're not there yet. So, okay, okay Geneva? Well, I thank you so much, and I really appreciate your program. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate your calling. Uh, we're going to speak with Art in uh, Brainerd, Minnesota, listening on MCBI. Welcome to Open Line Art. How can I help you? Good morning, sir. So I believe um, that with Jesus on the cross, correct me if I'm wrong, that he was offered something to drink twice. The first time he refused it, and then the second time, and God talks about, he said he's third. It was oftentimes... Well, you know what, can you say, can you go back a little bit? You, you kind of broke up. We didn't hear you. Okay. So when the Jesus second time he did off- what? Did he partake of what he was offered, or it was just offered and um, he didn't partake? And it was offered to fulfill Scripture, or what was the purpose? Uh, well, yes, it fulfilled Scripture. Uh, psalm twenty-two, fifteen, a, a psalm describing the Messiah's atonement, uh, his, cru- his crucifixion, actually. That's the psalm that says... They pierced my hands and my feet. That psalm indicates that he would be thirsty uh, at the at the crucifixion. Psalm twenty two fifteen uh, says, uh, "My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You you bring me to the dust of death." So my tongue sticking to the roof of my mouth indicates a parched tongue, thirst. Uh, psalm sixty nine twenty one says they gave me vinegar to drink. Uh, And so here in verse 29, it says uh, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. And then it says when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said it is finished. So uh, apparently he did at least have the the sponge touch his lips uh, and partook of it that way. So, uh, do you think there's anything significant about that? I mean, obviously, going through the crucifixion process because of 
fluid loss, you would become thirsty. That makes common sense. Um, but was there any spiritual significance? Like the first time it was offered and refused it because I, the murder, I believe, that was mixed in, it was kind of like a painkiller. Uh, the second time here, the, or this passage where he receives it, I don't think it was much help to him. Regardless, putting some vinegar on your lips isn't exactly, sour wine isn't exactly going to restore someone, because obviously it didn't. Uh, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Uh, so I I don't think there's much much here other than a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says, they gave me vinegar to drink. I think, it, if anything, it shows that in the process of being crucified, the Lord Jesus uh, was... Uh, despised. That was really what Isaiah 53 pointed toward. Uh, and this giving him vinegar wasn't to help him, this sour wine. It was to show uh, the, the disregard they actually had for him. They gave him vinegar to drink, not water. And uh, so uh, the point of it, though, is it didn't help him. Uh, he was uh, able to, well, he, he wasn't able to recover. And he then uh, uh, gave up his spirit and went to be with his father immediately. Uh, and Luke, I believe it says, into your hands I commit my spirit, he said to his father. And he went immediately to be with the father. Well, Art, thanks for your call. We're going to come right back with the mailbag. Tahira, it's your first time with me. Glad you're going to be in here. Talk about your questions that you've sent in to Open Line. This is Michael Rydelic. You're listening to Open Line. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Michael Rydelic. Joining me right now is Tahira Haynes. She's producing today. She's in the producer's chair. Hey, Tahira, Welcome. First time, huh? Hi, Michael. Thank you. Yes, this is my first time. On Open Line. You've produced a lot of programs here for Moody Radio, right? That is correct. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're here. We got to meet last week. That was fun for me. And uh, so this is... uh, Now, I have to ask you, because I I think I asked you this, but you are not a Moody Bible Institute grad, right? I am not. Yeah. See, we even hire people here at Moody Radio that didn't graduate from Moody, like Trisha did. Uh, uh, Amy, our engineer, did you graduate from Moody? Yeah, she's, she's nodding. Give me a thumbs up. Uh, we have a great communications program at Moody. Uh, you don't have to have gone through it uh, to, to be a, someone to work here at Moody Radio, but it sure is a great program. Our comm program, I think, is second to none. And it, it deals with print. It deals with radio, uh, video. It's just a wonderful comm program. I think that sometimes people don't realize. You know, they think Moody Bible Institute, all you study here, all you can study is the Bible, you know. Uh, but it's actually so much more. We've got all these majors, but everyone does study Bible and theology and ministry skills. But then we have these other majors. You know I teach Jewish studies, but our comm major is just fantastic. I want to encourage anyone, if you're listening, if you are interested in learning about comm or 
any of the other wonderful majors, check out moody.edu. It's a great school. I really want to encourage, I, you know, I've been on the radio so long, I never talk about the school, but my life is the school. Uh, and I want to let people know if you've got some young people in your life, children, grandchildren who are approaching college, now's the time to check out moody.edu, all sorts of programs there uh, to get a great foundation for life. Uh, well, Tahira, I, I, uh, I see you, you have a bunch of questions that uh, you and Trisha pulled together that people sent in. Uh, what, what, do you have your favorites that you want to pull up and go with? I do have a few favorites. Okay. Thank you. I'll start with Kathy from Ohio. She sent a question through our website. I heard someone on the radio once say that Palm Sunday occurred on Lamb Selection Day for Passover. Could you elaborate as to what Lamb Selection Day is? Thank you. Yeah. Well... Obviously, the first day of Passover was that uh, Passover began Thursday. It's kind of weird when you look at the schedule. It looks like in the synoptics that Passover began Thursday night, right, when the Last Supper took place. Mm -hmm. But the Sadducees, the priests, had not yet celebrated Passover. You can see that when they bring uh, the Lord Jesus in for trial. And the reason for that is is the Pharisees and the Galileans started counting Passover on Thursday night, and the Sadducees and Judeans started counting Passover and offering their sacrifices on Friday morning through the middle of the day. So that's why there, does, there appears to be a difference of opinion. Uh, of when, and why did the priesthood, the Sadducees, allow the Pharisaic Galilean interpretation? Because there were so many animals that had to be sacrificed by so many people that were present that they, just for the sake of making it all happen, that's when they, they started on Thursday at dusk. Uh, that said, uh, if you're going to start sacrificing Thursday, well, where are you going to get those animals? They have to be checked out and prepared, and you have to have your animal ready. And so the process of, of examining and presentation of the lambs uh, where it was done on the day that the triumphal entry took place. And uh, that's kind of significant because just as Israel was examining the lambs to see that they were without spot or blemish, that they were perfect, on that very same day, the Lord Jesus was presented to Israel as the pure and spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so, yes, that's, that, that preacher got it right. Uh, of course, I do believe that's when they began to examine the lambs, and it continued through all the way through to Passover because there was a lot of lambs to be examined. So that's it. Yep, I think that's it. I think uh, that when we examine the life of, of the Lord Jesus, we could see that he was morally pure and spotless, and uh, therefore could be our atonement. Thank you, Michael, for that response. Mm -hmm. We also have a question from our very own Trish, of course, from <laughs> Illinois, WMBI. Okay. In the book of Daniel, we learn about the 70 weeks. We are currently waiting in expectation of the 70th week. When were the other 70, 69 weeks fulfilled, and why does that matter? Okay. Wow. Uh it matters because I believe it's one of the most definitive evidences that Jesus really is the Messiah. 
And if you look at Daniel 9, uh, by the way, uh, this is a good chance for me to mention, I think that there's uh, a pretty good exposition of Daniel 9, 24 through 27 in the Moody Bible Commentary. And if anyone thinks, oh, that would really help me out to see it, because there's numbers involved in it. I know everyone gets really nervous with numbers, don't you think, Tahira? I oh, do. Yeah, it's math. Oh, no, I can't do it. Uh, but you, uh, it's certainly possible for people to do. Uh, and uh, so I think the Moody Bible Commentary does a good job with that. Uh, but here's the, the message. It says, From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, first of all, when is the decree issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? It's not the decree to return to Jerusalem. It's the decree that we find in Nehemiah chapter 2 when uh, Ahasuerus, or, uh, Xerxes uh, allows... Remember, uh, uh, in, the, in Nehemiah 2... Uh, Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to go back uh, to uh, the land to rebuild the walls, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That takes place in 444 B.C., 444 B.C. And then there are seven weeks and 62 weeks. Those are weeks of years. It's actually sevens is literally what the Hebrew says. So uh, from... 444 B.C., there's going to be 69 periods of seven years. That's 483 years, which is very cool because now we can count 483 years. Uh, but the difference is that in the Bible, they're using years that are... We're using an, a, a Western calendar that counts days. We have 365 and a quarter days in a year. But in the Bible, when they talked about a year, they weren't talking about 365. They were talking about 360 days. So if we convert it to those 483 years to uh, 365 and a quarter day years, it becomes 476 years. So from 444 B.C. to uh, the fulfillment, 476 years, that comes out, we would say, oh, let's see, negative 444 plus 476, that's 32. But... There's no zero year, so you have to add a one. That's the year A.D. 33. That's when Messiah was to come by A.D. 30, on A.D. 33. That's exactly the day, uh, the year. And moreover, if we were to... You remember in the old movies, Tahira, when they would show the passing of time, they'd have a calendar and they would show one day flipping over after another, tearing off a page. Well, if we did that from the issuing of the, the decree... Uh, the 476 years comes to 173,880 days. If we did that 173,880 days, it would come out on the date of the triumphal entry. Wow. Exactly on the triumphal entry. So that's a remarkable prophecy. That's why I believe in Luke 19 at the triumphal entry, the Lord Jesus says, if you knew this day the things which make for peace... You know, but they're now hidden from your eyes because they should have understood that that was the fulfillment of Daniel's 
prophecy of the 69th week. The question is, what difference does it make? It shows that Jesus is the promised Messiah. It also says that there would be two things that happen afterwards. The Messiah will be cut off. That's the death of the Messiah, uh, but not for himself. And then, so the uh, crucifixion happens afterwards. He dies as a substitution for us. Of course, he's resurrected. And then the Romans come and destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary in AD 70. That's the other thing that happens afterwards. It's a remarkable prophecy. Uh, And uh, if I went through it too fast, let me just say, check out the Moody Bible Commentary. It's a a little bit uh, slower. You can read it. It's got all the same stuff that I just mentioned. So anyway, uh, you know what? We're going to take a break here, Tahira. Uh, I hope that helped. you know, people think there's numbers involved. I can't understand it. Yes, you can. It's not that hard. So, uh, or maybe when the uh, podcast comes out or the, the online, you can go back and listen again. But uh, it's a great prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, one of my favorite. We'll be right back with more of your questions in just a moment. Don't go away. This is Michael Rydelnik. Welcome back to Open Line. You know, some of the most frequent questions I I get on Open Line are how should believers think about the Jewish people and what does it mean that God chose the Jewish people? Well, one of our underwriters, Chosen People Ministries, an organization that brings the good news to Jewish people around the world, wants to help answer those kind of questions, and they're offering a free book. It's called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. It explains God's promises to the Jewish people and what they mean today. It shows how God has preserved his people throughout history and brought them back to their own land. This book will help us learn how to pray for the Jewish people and how to participate in bringing them the good news of Jesus the Messiah. For your copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus, just go to the cho- to the Open Line website, not to Chosen People, openlineradio.org. Scroll down. There's a link there that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that. You'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel, the Jewish people, and Jesus. And we're going to speak next with Tammy in Georgia listening on WMBI. I guess on you've got the Moody Radio app, Tammy, do you? Oh, hello. I'm listening to you on 88.9 on the radio this morning, and I called in. Oh, great. I'm so glad. Uh, How can I help you today? Yes, I have been taught that Jesus is soon to return for Mm -hmm. the rapture of his people. Um, And so that's the first coming. And then at the end of the tribulation, he's going to return again with the saints. Mm -hmm. Um, But You've been taught well. That's great. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. But what I what was just wondering, um, when Jesus came into the world and he died on the cross for our, for us, um, seems to me like that would be the first coming. Can you expound on that a little? Yeah, that bit? was the like first a, a first appearance. <laughs> yeah, that was the first appearance of the Messiah, his death and resurrection and ascension to the Father, and now we await his return. Uh, now. Uh, the essential thing is that we remember that I don't think that there's two returns so much as that there's two phases of one return. Phase one is his return 
before the tribulation period to take the church to be with him. And, and that involves the resurrection of those who have been buried. Their spirits are with him, but he returns with them, and the, their bodies are resurrected from the, the church age. They go to be with him, and we're not left behind. They are resurrected first, and those of us who are alive and remain are translated instantly to be with him. And then uh, sometime after that, the tribulation begins, and at the end of it, uh, the church will return with him to uh, uh, to f- to fulfill the promise of uh, the second phase of his return. Uh, so phase one is the rapture. The second is his return at the tribulation. So there's only there's a first coming and a second coming, but the second coming has two phases. Phase one, the rapture, and phase two, his return to deliver Israel at the end of the tribulation. Does that make sense? It does. Thank yeah. you for expounding on that. For let me, me let me show you something in the Bible that kind of corroborates this. Uh, In Revelation chapter 19, which is taking place, these events are taking place in heaven at the beginning uh, during the tribulation period. And it says what happens in Revelation 19 is that there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can see that in verses 6 through 8. Uh, it says the marriage of the lamb has come in verse seven. His wife has prepared herself. Of course, the bride there is the church. And it says she, the bride, was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen linen represents the righteous deeds of the saints. Right? So marriage supper of the lamb happens. And then what happens next is, as I saw, so it's taking place in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What what follows next is I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war and righteousness, and it describes the Lord Jesus returning. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses. Look what they're wearing, pure white linen. So who returns with him at the second coming? The bride, who is wearing pure white linen, the church returns with him as the armies of heaven. So they obviously had to have been uh, raptured and resurrected before so they could be there for in heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and now they're returning with him at the, uh, at the return at the end of the tribulation. Does, you see what I'm saying there? Yes, thank you for that. Yeah. Yes, it's, I, I do. Thank you yeah. for that. Good. Hey, I'm so glad that that you called. Uh, here's one of the reasons why I so value the idea that the Lord Jesus is going to return any moment now, because he teaches us that his return is imminent. It could happen today. It could happen before the end of this broadcast. It could happen before I finish my next sentence. Nope, didn't happen, but it could before I finish the next sentence. So uh, it keeps us ready for his return. We're looking for him to come for us. Thanks for your call, Tammy. Really appreciate it. We're going to speak next with Annette in Ohio, listening on WCRF. Welcome to Open Line, Annette. How can I help you today? Hi, Dr. Radonik. Yes, were the apostles baptized? Well, it doesn't say that they... It says they were authorized to baptize in Matthew 28, make disciples of the nations. 
uh, which is, but it doesn't say that they baptized each other first. So, you know, I can't, it's an argument of silence if I said yes or no. I don't know. It doesn't say. Uh, But I do think it's interesting that some of the early followers of Jesus were actually disciples of John the Baptist. You can read about that in uh, John 1, you know. Uh, it says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing. This is John one thirty-five, Passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. So what does that tell me? Uh, uh, these it, it appears to be... Uh, Two of the disciples right there were disciples of John, which means that they likely were baptized by John for them to be his followers, and now they've become followers of Jesus. So I would guess that all the uh, the 11 were baptized by John the Baptist. So that, if you ask me, were they baptized in water? Yeah, they were. But according to John's baptism, I'm guessing that they baptized each other uh, with, with immersion, in identification with Jesus, uh, but I, I don't know that because it doesn't state it as far as I can see in Scripture. Okay? Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, so glad. Hey, you know, one of the things that people ask all the time is, should I be baptized? And I just want to say that it is one of the most important things that we can do. It doesn't give us any merit, doesn't make us followers of Jesus, but what it does is it publicly identifies us with him. It wasn't some new thing. It was a, a Jewish practice. It's called immersion, and it was practiced in the first century by Jewish people. It's still practiced by Jewish people, to be honest. No one thought, oh, this is some new thing. But what they did is they were identifying with their Messiah, and it identified them. It associated with them. And, of course, for us, when we read Romans 6, we identify with the death of the Lord Jesus as we go under the water, and then we identify with his resurrection and new life when we come up out of the water. It is a very meaningful command the Lord Jesus gave us to follow, and I'd encourage you, if you've never done it, go ahead and do it. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. That's the first hour. Keep listening. There's a second hour of Open Line on most of these stations. If your station doesn't carry Open Line's second hour, you can always listen on the Moody Radio app or online. During the break, check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. It's got all sorts of links to our current resource, how to become a kitchen table partner, chosen people ministries resource, whatever you're looking for, you'll find it there. Our Bible study across America continues in a few moments. Open Line with Dr. Michael Radelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. We'll be right back.